This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I go out and I do these school visits and I talk to kids and so many kids want to be artists. They want to be graphic novelists. They want to make comics. And how powerful is it for me to stand there and say, this is the kind of story that you have to make in order to be standing in this space? Or is it more powerful for me to say, I've made Pashmina and a book about sharks and a book about time travel, right? I am here in this space and I'm telling you that whatever you imagine and whatever you want to pursue, you can do that. We want them to be able to pursue whatever they dream. My name is Nidhi Chinani, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Nidhi Chanani, an Indian-American freelance illustrator, cartoonist, and writer. She makes comic books and awesome storybooks. You might know Nidhi from her debut award-winning graphic novel, Pashmina, but her diverse body of work from books like Jukebox, Binnie's Diwali, the Shark Princess series, which is a personal favorite of my daughter, in October, soon to be released, Super Boba Cafe will not just blow you away, but also move you. We'll put some links into the show notes, but if you've got a kid or a kid at heart, you've got to be reading Nidhi's work. Nidhi's story is almost as amazing as her take on work and life, and Sharon and I started to become fans of not just her work, but her approach before we even met. She's such a nerd about storytelling and art and her place in it, and you'll definitely get the vibe from this chat that you're hearing old friends talk for the first time. So let's get into our fun conversation with our new friend, Nidhi. Nidhi, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So Nidhi, you're kind of famous with our kids and with us. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But I guess the real question uh, folks want to know is, um, where are you from? So there's a couple answers for that, you know, um, as it goes. <laughs> the first question and the second question, right? Where are you from? Right. Where are you really? So I grew up in Southern California in Torrance, for anybody who knows that area. Uh, are you kidding? I have an aunt and cousins that live in Torrance. It's a big Indian community. I know Redondo Beach very well. I think everybody <laughs> knows each other, don't they? Yes, yes. That's uh, We're perpetuating the myth. But, you know, I think that if they do live there, it's highly likely that they know some Shananis. Because, like, we had a big... <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not even joking. <laughs> You know, my my dad immigrated there from Calcutta with his five, it was five brothers. And then they just like 
Wait, all five immigrated together? No, separately. It was like oh, a one staggered. Of the five, one yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. all five Same of migration. us, grew, you know, like they all five families um, grew up in Torrance. And so there's still some of them there. And, you know, they just kind of immerse themselves in the Indian community there. So it's like I just went to my cousin's son's graduation in Torrance, and uh, all this Indian community came to celebrate him, you know, getting into college. And it's just like, it's so wild to see these people that you grew up with and they haven't changed, you know? You're like, mm-hmm. uh, hi, auntie. Hi, uncle. You're like literally the same person. I still don't remember your name. You're just auntie and uncle, but like, you're the same. That's like the ultimate hack. I've actually told my daughter that. It if is. You don't the remember ultimate. their name. Yeah. Just say uncle, auntie. Jennifer yeah. Brown. Yeah. Or, or, or Asian. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It works. It's so great. But yeah, so I grew up in Torrance and then, I, but I was born in Calcutta. But I came here when I was four months old. So I definitely like to tout that I was born in India because it is important to me. But that gives you your street cred yes. on, on the mean streets of Torrance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then a lot of like, you know how it is, like Indian enough, not Indian enough. And so yeah. a lot of people who were raised in India are like, well, that doesn't count. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean... How how are you judging that? Nithi, I, I, look, look, as, as an ABCD, I'm taking the sides of the FOBs. Like, yeah, that totally doesn't count. Dude. Okay. It's better than, I, hey, you got you got one up on me. Her birth you got one up on me. But her birth certificate says she was born there. Yeah. Okay, hang on. I'm going to steal the next question from you, Sharon. All right, then. go ahead. <laughs> Nithi, uh, tell me about one of your earliest memories in Calcutta, though. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, come on. You're awful. That's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> But actually, so I well, mean, no, did you did you go back a lot as a kid? No. So this is really interesting because a lot of this is like it kind of goes to how I was raised and kind of some of the situation growing up. But we didn't have a lot of money. And so we didn't go back a lot. And the one time that we did go back was for a family death, um, which often happens. How old were you? I was four. And I okay. still okay. distinctly remember two things. One is that I saw a lizard in the house. And that was very new to me. So I was like a gecko or something. And I was like, I didn't even know, you know, that that was possible. And the second thing was that somebody stole. So we had one of those flat kind of houses where the middle is open. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you watch any Bollywood films, they also have a lot of these like houses. But in the middle, they like stored their bikes. And in the middle of the night, somebody came and stole the bike. And so that also left an impression. And so those are the two random first memories I have. India is a land of crazy lizards and bike thieves. Yeah. Yes, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But so we didn't, you know, growing up, we didn't go back a lot because money was always an issue for us. Whereas like my other family, like my dad's, you know, other brothers and stuff, they, they would go back a lot more than we would. But what I always say is that I didn't know the difference, honestly, because when you're part of an immigrant pod, the entire community that we had outside of school was Indian. Yeah. Like we didn't, we didn't integrate at all. <laughs> like, and, and it wasn't important, right? Like everybody had their life at school, but on the weekends we would do we would do parties that were really dinner weird. parties and pujas. Yes, yeah. there would be pujas that transformed into dinner parties, and then somehow we were there all weekend. I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. just like hang out forever because this was our community. And so when people say like, "Oh, you're not really like this," I'm like, "But the only people that I interacted with outside of school were Indian. Like I'm not joking. It was our entire life. 
there's there's a lot of truth to that. Like my mom's a big part of my mom's side of the family is in Southern California in the exact same town. Mm-hmm. And in Alabama, well, so first I'd go there and I'd see like these just like massive communities. Like from us, the dinner party was like show up at Ushanti's house and, you know, maybe 10 families in a potluck and you go play video games and eat pizza in their son's room. Right. But then the parents stay up drinking tea and you wind up sleeping over and watching SNL because <laughs> the parents just went home because you were asleep. But <laughs> it, then I'd go to do the equivalent when visiting family in Torrance specifically. And these were like 100 family shindigs. And it's just like so much bigger. Like for me, it was like the secret life, you know, mm-hmm. seeing them. But like, it's like a full on, well, everyone goes to this grocery store and everyone goes to that thing and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a micro city. It is. And also, you know, we in and of ourselves, the Chinanis are our own micro city. Like, like <laughs> the Chinani. you know what I mean? Like, seriously. I mean, uh, also, I just have to say, I'm coming off like spending a week with my family. Yeah. So we were just in LA, like all my cousins have kids now. And so we gather around July 4th. And so I forget, you know, because like my family is small um, and my husband's family is small. And that's the family that we're the closest to. And so then going back home, I'm like, oh, yeah, any point in time, there's 20 of us. Right. You know, right. So, so like we also like I grew up like as much as, you know, I only had one sibling, but I grew up with 13 cousins and we wow. literally saw each other all the time. So, you know, it felt very much like we were a big family and we were all in our own kind of little village. Yeah. I I have a similar experience with that somewhat because I grew up in and around Chinatown and mm-hmm. same thing, right? Immigrant population and all the families who knew each other back in China basically all met up again or crossed paths again when they got to New York City. And that's that was sort of the social circle that I grew up with. But at some point, and I feel like for me, it was probably middle school. That's when things diversified because I ended up going to a school that wasn't, wasn't directly in the neighborhood. Mm. So at what point did that change for you when you started to realize there were actually people other than Chinanis or people that look like Chinanis within your world? I think that happened when I got a best friend who was not from the same background. And I didn't necessarily... Shocking. shocking. I know, right? Right? But she was... What did mom and dad say? <laughs> I mean, they were fine with it. She was down the street. I was out there hair. You know what okay. I mean? Okay. Um, yeah. Over her house all the time. And and she was she was Hapa, right? So... Wait, wait. What does that mean? Sorry. So she's mixed Asian and um, white. And so... Is that, is, that an, is that a like... What does that stand for? Bengali half, term? Yeah. Half... Wait. Oh, ha- oh, yeah. I've read that book. There's a book. Another guess. Hapa. Yeah, yeah. I've only heard this term. Like, but what does it sta- stand for? Half what? I don't know, actually. That's a very half good... Asian people population half association. American, half Asian. I must be dating myself because it was so in use back then. I'm su- surprised that I'm, I'm... I'm Googling it right now. Okay, good. Good. One of us is on it. Hapa is a Hawaiian word for someone of multiracial ancestry. It's a Hawaiian mm-hmm. word. Interesting. Yeah. It just got adopted by the Asian American community because I heard it a lot, um, at least of a time. Maybe yeah. it's not anymore. I, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to call it now. We're making this an acronym. It stands for half Asian people. Awesome. Awesome. Or half Asian people <laughs> are awesome. How's that? We've reclaimed this. Yes. yes. Just like, you know, many terms. But yeah, so she was connected to her Japanese heritage. And so, I mean, like I hung out there a lot, but it was also like my introduction into kind of another community. And, you know, she would introduce me to a lot of different things. I'm pretty sure. So there was a period of my life in high school where I realized that 
the majority of the world ate with chopsticks. This is going to sound so ridiculous. And I was like, how is it that I don't know how? And so for months on end, I ate everything with chopsticks. Indian food, chopsticks, like everything. And I was like, I'm determined to learn how. And I did. And I think it's because I was, you know, around her and her house. And I was just like feeling like dumb that I didn't know how to use this thing that everybody in her family knew how to use, right? How old were you when that happened? It was in high school. <laughs> oh, high school, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it was it was late. No, I asked that because so my daughter right now, she's seven. And she can use a fork and a spoon. Mm-hmm. But at home, at dinner, it's either hands or chopsticks. Oh, uh, she's nice. half Chinese, half Indian. I love and that. we're like, we hope you're not just using your hands when you're out. Because <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't carry chopsticks around like right. you know, a little Asian girl might. So anyway. I mean, so. they are pretty portable. Yeah. Hand, hands are even more portable than it. <laughs> yes, that's very hands, good yeah, point. That's true. Hands, hands are on you all the time. Yes. Right. Yes. And they're filthy too. So added flavor. But that's why at Indian restaurants, they always have the sink outside of the bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, just in the back. Yep. So, And I really yeah. love when, like, when you're in India and they give you, like, the water to rinse your hands in after you eat. It's very helpful. But even, like, in a COVID, post-COVID world, now we all have hand sanitizer. So you can get into the hand thing much faster. That is true. That's a very good point. So, so Nidhi, uh, either uh, before you met your Hapa BFF and became <laughs> obsessed with chopsticks or after, what did you want to be when you grew up? I mean, there were two careers that I was very interested in. One was a pop star. Unfortunately, never, never really did come to materialize. <laughs> Except, <laughs> You've got a few years. You've got a few years. And, and an author. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love books. I was a voracious reader. I read everything. And, you know, books were different for us, at least, than, you know, we, we here in my house, like, I, I can't even tell you how many books I have because I don't want to count. But they were definitely around my house all the time. My mom was a really big reader, but we would go to the library, get the maximum amount of books and I'd go through them. And then I would read my mom's books. (laughs) You know, so... What, what, I'm curious, what did mom and dad do? Um, so my mom is an accountant and my dad was also like an accountant controller. I don't really know mm-hmm. what that means, but like a bigger accountant. I don't know. Corporate accountant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. something like that. But my mom would read like mysteries and kind of like a lot of pulp fiction. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading like John Grisham probably around like 12 or you know, like, because like, I needed more to read. And so yeah. I would pick up whatever was around. It's just a very different, like, now I think there's like this kind of explosion in children's literature and there's so much more selection. So, I mean, growing up now, I think it's kind of like you're in this really wonderful kind of renaissance of this kind of material. But yeah, so I read a lot and I remember distinctly the time that I thought that I could really become an author was, this is going to sound silly, but was when I picked up Jimpa Lahiri's book, The Interpreter of Maladies. Yeah, the, the, the short stories. Yes. Yeah. Prior to that, I had never read an Indian author. And so I kind of wanted to be this thing, but it wasn't even really necessarily a formulation in my head that I couldn't. I think it's very different, like how we talk about being in it in Indian American or being a person of color in this world now, I didn't necessarily think of it as a barrier, but I didn't also think of it as a reality. 
until I had her book in my hands. And she, of course, won the Pulitzer, right? And, you know, in my status chasing community, I was like, well, not only did she make a book, but she won a very prestigious award. Yes, I feel like, but even beyond creators, for so many South Asians of our generation, she's like a gateway mm-hmm. because there was interpreter maladies or maladies, and then the namesake, which Sharon and I've talked a lot about. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that book. Same, but it's it's just like she was a gateway because then I was like, wait, there's other Indian authors, and then you just like go discover them. Yeah, and yeah, it's nuts. And I think it's interesting because you know my mom, she was a big reader, and she would read like Indian authors in India, right? Like she grew up reading that kind of stuff. But when she came here, she just picked up what was kind of at the checkout stand or the most popular thing because she read mysteries in India. But if you come here and you're looking for mysteries, you're not going to find Jimpa Lahiri's mystery book. Right. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, you'll find Rowington Mysteries book about something else, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, I mean, like, you know, authors of color are definitely relegated to a certain kind of, of writing. Yeah, the immigrant story and yeah. The trauma story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's changing a lot now. We're pushing back as is necessary. But, you know, in the 80s, you weren't going to find that. Yeah. Who were some of your favorites back then? Ooh. I mean, the book that is still in my shelf, Tattered, and that I read a lot, um, which is going to be maybe a little too much of a reveal, but it was Bastard Out of Carolina. That was the book that I read, I don't even know how many times, but I love that book. But also I read a lot of, I mean, I'm probably born from my mom's influence, but I read a lot of R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike, a lot of those creepy kind of uh, young reader yeah. books. And I mean, honestly, I ended up really liking mysteries and I haven't come back to them until recently. And it's been really fun. It, it's so funny those authors, yeah, I remember reading a lot of Christopher Pike mm-hmm. in my adolescent years. Like, there's like a suspenseful edge. Mm-hmm. It's not like full on horror. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your books in a minute. But like in Pashmina specifically, it's it's not quite, sus- but there's like an edge to like there's a darker story mm-hmm. around the corner of these people's lives that we're not going to talk about till like Act Three or something. Right? Do you think that's like where the fascination with that came from? I mean, I think there's as a lifelong reader, there's. Have you read the book? It's George Saunders, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. It's a very long title. Mm-mm. It's a book about books, right? It's a book about reading and what... I read this book much after, and it was published after Pashmina, but I think that the reason that there's suspense or darkness and kind of something to pull you through is I'm really trying to think about the reader's experience and what's going to help you stay engaged and what's going to help you turn that page, Right. And I think that's what I build in when I'm at least thinking of storytelling and thinking about how to unfold the story. And I think that George Saunders does this amazing job of getting into the weeds about, you know, when you set this tone in your writing, the reader has expectations and you can either meet them, it's satisfying. You can surprise them and it's satisfying. Or you can disappoint them. And depending on how you write it, it can be satisfying or it cannot. It's fascinating. Yeah. So with your obsession with reading, I just, I have to ask. No, no, no. This is, um, I think I know what your question is because it's, or if you don't ask it, I have another question about it, but go ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's one thing to like really enjoy something and do something a lot. But then when you tell mom and dad, you want to do that, Mm. you know, like how do they feel about pop star being a pop star or being a writer? 
I don't think they ever knew I wanted to be a pop star. Um, <laughs> that was the secret. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, there's more of a model in Bollywood. They can see that. There's more of them than Jumbala Harry. Um, I definitely did tell them that I wanted to be an author and I wanted to study literature. It did not go over well. No. They were not enthused. What did they say? I mean, I think, you know, it was it was both like my, you know, giant Chinani family, but also my parents. And they were just really focused on like, you know, the standard encouragement. Become a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer. Mm-hmm. Right. And those are like, yep, the three options that I have. Wait, but this this Jumpa Lahiri person, she is not that. Right. So did you know about her? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's that thing where you need ammunition. It's interesting because I I do, you know, do school visits. And this is one of the things that I find is fascinating is the parents are now, um, especially if I speak in a school where where it's a predominantly Indian or Asian, the parents will come up and ask me, like, how did you do this? Like, my kid is interested in this. And I'm like, and they ask me, like, what do you what do I do to help my kid get there? I'm like, the fact that you're asking me this is already progress. You know what I mean? Like right. the, my parents, my parents did not. They were really concerned, right? You you have this immigrant experience. You really are struggling and financially. We were never, never sound. There's a lot of reasons for that. But so I think that they were really worried that if I chose a path that was like heart forward, that I would be, you know, cash poor. And so I understood all of their concerns, but I didn't care. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, you know, I'm already living in a situation where we don't have enough money. So it's not like going to be a shock to me. Um, I would rather be in that situation and be doing the thing that I really want to do. Yeah. So, you know, again, in the same kind of money vein, I didn't go to a four-year. I went to junior college and then I transferred to UC Santa Cruz and I studied literature because at the point that I left my house, even if they told me to declare engineering, I knew I knew enough of the system. My parents had so many issues. They ended up splitting when I was in high school. So they were kind of really concerned with what was going on with them. And so I did my own college applications, financial aid applications. Like I did all that stuff on my own. So even if they made me declare something, I knew how to go back to the administration. And you know what I mean? Like I had navigated myself right. to the point that I could go and, and change my major. So being a writer and an author, or sorry, being an author was always a dream of yours. How did the art part come into play? <laughs> so that was that was the surprise. That was definitely <laughs> a surprise to everybody involved. Um, including you? Including myself. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm still surprised and I still talk about it. The thing is, is like, you see my work now mm-hmm. and you see how it looks good, right? It looks yeah. like I know what I'm doing, yeah. which is great. <laughs> and the stickers are beautiful and the bookmarks <laughs> are adorable. I mean, the, the magnets you sent us, like you are, you're actually a, a staple of conversation in our family now. <laughs> That's great. You literally are the favorite bookmark yeah. In, yeah. in every oh, comic book in nice. my daughter's hands I'm right now. being yeah. the favorite bookmark. That's awesome. Well, so I didn't realize that I wanted to do art. I mean, I had always kind of drawn through my life, but I was never that kid. This is surprising to everybody because I was never the kid who was drawing in class. You know those kids, right? Who like yeah. hear, oh, you should be an artist. Oh my God, you're so good. Yeah. Nobody ever said that to me. <laughs> Nobody. There's nothing in my life that reinforced the idea that I should pursue this. However... When I was in 
San Francisco and I was kind of uh, figuring out my life. No, actually, it was before, before San Francisco. I was working at the library. I was figuring out what I wanted to do for work. I was working in nonprofits and I kept taking art classes because I really wanted to figure out how do people make this look good? Because I love children's books and I love the art in children's books. And I found it so captivating. And I wanted to figure out how to do that better. And I kept taking these classes in art leagues, you know, these like kind of community based art classes. And I would walk in and everybody would be over 60. And then there'd be me in my 20s. Right. So I was like, oh, maybe this is not the right place for me. I mean, I learned a lot and actually I'm still in contact with some of the teachers there. They're excellent teachers, but I wanted more. And so I thought to myself, maybe I should go to art school. And at that time, like, I don't think that I had a real full form of what I wanted to do with it. I just wanted to see if I could get better. And so I took out another set of college loans um, and I went to art school was not good. Really, nobody believes me, but I was not very good. And I will, I will tell you why this should be believable, is that the reason I went to the Academy of Art in San Francisco is because they had no portfolio review. I was right about to ask that. I was right about to ask, how did you even get into art school? <laughs> <laughs> because they had no portfolio review. There's the hack, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there you go. And it was really, really expensive. But I was like, nobody else is going to let me into art school in my late 20s. Because if I give them my portfolio, they'll be like, yeah, you don't belong here. Right. Um, (laughs) The thing is, is that there's no other place to really get that kind of dense information about art and color and light and shadow and theory. And still, I dropped out in a year. Oh. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I got to ask, so looking at your career, and I actually don't know what I read first, right? Did you, did I hear about Pashmina and pick it up at the library because it looked interesting and I wanted to read it ahead of my daughter? Or was it one of your many storybooks, right? Where you were the artist and sometimes the writer. But was that the way in? It was like, well, let me work as an illustrator first and get, understand the story. Because illustrating for a storybook is very different from, you know, sequential art for a comic book, like the actual art has to tell a story. Right. How did you break in? And like, what was the moment where like, you know what, I've got a bigger story to tell beyond 20 illustrations for a kid's book, et cetera, et cetera. You completely and totally caught it without, like, this is exactly how I got in, but not through picture books. So when I dropped out of art school, part of the reason I dropped out of art school was, there's two reasons. One, it was ridiculously expensive and I was drowning in loans. And two, I actually got frustrated with the whole art school model. The art school model is like to kind of make a drawing perfect. And I was like, I don't have the skills to make my drawing perfect. What I need to do is draw all the time. And when I figured that out a year in, I was like, well, I don't know if I need art school. I just need to like be accountable to myself and make myself draw every day. And how am I going to do that? So this is way back when, it feels a long time ago now, but it was like 2012, 2013. And so what I did is I set up a mailing list of my family and friends and I was like, hey, I'm going to make you guys my accountability group and I'm going to send out a finished drawing every single day. And so I did that for three years and I did a full illustration every single day of the week. And that 
I didn't know at the time because I was just trying to get better, right? Like I was trying to draw two characters. I was trying to draw different animals. I was trying to figure out different backgrounds, different lighting. Um, And every time I was trying something new, I was getting better. But what happened in the flip side is I was creating all these stories and I was drawing from life. And my whole theory or my whole philosophy was there are beautiful moments in every single day. And I want to draw one of those every day. And so that's why my business is called Everyday Love. And so I was doing that. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, it's really frustrating, actually, after three years of drawing single illustrations, to limit myself to this one moment. I have so much more that I want to say with my art now that my art is somewhat decent. And so in and around that time, I had also rediscovered comics. And I had read comics when I was younger, but comics were so different when I was growing up. They were very much... What were you reading? What were you reading back then and what brought you in? Like, what was the rediscovery? So I, you know, I picked up like Tintin, which is heavily racist. (laughs) And like, I don't know. As a kid, you were reading Tintin. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was around Amarchitakatas, of course, which were painfully boring and too moralistic, you know, for me to really like want to read them over and over again. And then, you know, there was, of course, the superhero stuff, right? But that never felt accessible to me. It definitely, and, and it was at that time, it was made for boys, right? It wasn't made for girls. Mm-hmm. And so then when um, when I was in art school and I was kind of reading a lot of picture books, I was also introduced to a lot of the kind of newer comics. And the one that was most significant for me was American Born Chinese. I was like, well, I was on, I was like, wondering what you were about to say. And like, I called it. I called it. Yes. I mean, it's just like Jim Lahiri, right? These, yeah, yeah, it's like such a yeah. seminal book. Yeah, totally. It's not even funny. It's, it's, the thing is, is that so many, I mean, that's so powerful, right? To have created something that influences all these other people to kind of see themselves in a place where they may never have envisioned themselves before. And so when I read American Born Chinese and I thought, oh my God, you can do this with a graphic novel? You can do this with a comic, you know? I, at the time, was uh, working in a studio and one of the studio mates that I had knew Gene. And so I was reintroduced to comics and the form and what you can do with the form. And I started thinking about this idea, which ended up being Pashmina, and I thumbnailed out an entire graphic novel. And that was actually a memoir, which will never see the light of day, which I'm happy about. But I finished this and I was like, well, what do I do with this now? And so I asked my studio mate and he was like, hey, do you want me to like reach out to Gene and see if he'll introduce you to his agent? And Gene has always been this person. I think maybe now he might not have time for something like this, but he's so generous. And Gene, without seeing what I had written, said, sure here's her information and you can tell her that I sent you. Wow. He's amazing. He really is. Yeah. And I got my first agent because of Gene. Wow. And I made that first attempt at making a graphic novel because of Gene. So yeah, it's kind of wild. I, I mean, I'm, I'm speechless on so many levels. One, I, just, I, I joke with Sharon all the time, like the couple podcasts I do, after we got a couple of guests, I was like, I don't need to do like. We talked to Gene a couple of years ago, a mutual friend who lives in Torrance, by the way. <laughs> All goes back to Torrance. No, because uh, Gene and Brian like went to high school together and he was like, oh, you like Gene? Because Brian's an actor and, and 
they announced, you know, American Born Chinese is going to become a TV show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Brian, this is a part you need to like audition. I was like, oh, that's so funny. I know Gene, right? <laughs> uh, and that was before like the, the Daniels got involved and yeah. the show and all that stuff. Um, and he's like, oh, do you want to meet him? And I was like, yes. And then, you know, we, <laughs> we finished that recording. I remember being super sick. And I was like, Sharon, we can like quit the podcast. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm done. She's like, I'm done. That was it. That's that, we can't. It doesn't get better than this. So <laughs> but, like, but it's just like, yeah, it's nicest guy. Like I sent him just a congratulations email once the show came out and I finally got to watch it, you know? And he writes back. He yeah. He tries to, one, I just like, yeah, just he's awesome. But the second is just like that that story of how you thumbnailed it and it kind of had to get out of your mm-hmm. system. Like, is that how it works with you? Is is that, because I, I read, you know, obviously you've read Pashmina be- before we were introduced. And then obviously my, my daughter had read Shark Princess, you know, the, <laughs> the Shark Princess cinematic universe. Yes. But then, you know, I, I picked up Jukebox ahead of this chat, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it feels like there's something in you that like has to get out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that it's changed so much. I mean, I'm 13 books in and Peshmina was definitely fits that mold of it had to get out of me. And I think it was also born of reading Jean's book and looking around and saying, why doesn't my face have a place in comics? You know, why don't I see myself reflected in these narratives? And at the same time of making Pashmina, having Pashmina come out, I immediately rejected that concept, right? So it's, it's, I think that it's less of this has to come out for me than what I'm thinking about and what I'm ruminating on at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's what ends up kind of influencing the next story that I'm making. And sometimes it's, I mean, inspiration is so, in, in a way it's fickle, right? Because it, you can't just be like, okay, if I go to this one spot, you know, like in TV shows where they have like, I know where this character is going to be there and their special spot. I mean, I don't have a special spot where I can go and sit and ideas come to me. They really come to me at any point in time. And it's whether or not I want to, one, pursue them, but also what else I'm thinking about. Um, So when I was making Jukebox, I was thinking a lot about music and I was thinking about how music influences so much of our present day movements and history. And yet that connection of how music is infused into our everyday lives so much so that it's a reflection of where we are as a society, where we are as a global community. I haven't seen that connection surface. And so that's what, you know, kind of was driving the at least themes of jukebox. And so Well, it's funny. I, I was about to like make a joke about and time travel, but it Yes. Music is kind of this force that I was I was being flipped when I thought that a second ago, but it's like it is this force that has moved us throughout time. Mm-hmm. And there's a song of the summer, there's a song of the moment, like you know, if I hear the Rolling Stones give me shelter out of another movie trailer from the 60s and 70s, you know, set in the 60s and 70s. But it's like, that's a song that encompasses that moment, right? So Yeah, and it, it also is a reflection of what's going on historically, right? So I think that it's, there's, there's an amazing power of music. And I really, I mean, trying to capture that in a still image was also like, oh, great, I just gave myself that homework. But, you know, but also it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see like, how can I use light and shadow and try to actually encompass what it feels like to be transported by music? Your husband's a bit of a music nerd. And I know this because of the afterword you wrote in Jukebox. Can you, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you're also a music nerd, but like, can you talk about 
that? I'm definitely not a music nerd because I live with one. So, you know. <laughs> you don't have to be. <laughs> um, but I feel like, you know, what's nice about being with somebody who is passionate about something, it's just like kind of my, you know, my love of books and my love of art is that you kind of are like the sidekick to the main event, right? So like I kind of like get this um, runoff of of his nerddom, his fandom. Um we live in a house with 2,000 records, three turntables, wow. you know, records and music are part of our everyday. It's kind of one of those things where when I worked on Jukebox, it really surfaced. And we talk about music. We've been together for 20 years. We met in college. And there are these conversations you can just slip in and out of that are part of your own couple language, I guess. And music is one of those, right? It's like a thread that we can just pick up and go in and out of. So he he's in a band. He's been in a few bands. So there's that thread, right? Of like, you know, he's working on this melody or there's this thing that he's thinking about doing in a song or I'm just hearing him play guitar and maybe it's the background, right? It's just the background of our lives. But then there's also the actual collection of music, musicians, exposure to... He's he's very much a person who feels like collecting new stuff, but also old stuff. And he's just like, there's so much music. It's kind of how I feel about books and literature. There's so much. And it possibly can't live long enough to listen to all of it. And that's how I feel about books. So I feel like there's a lot of similarity there. There's a lot of overlap, but it is a nice thing to just kind of all of a sudden we're, you know, listening to, was it, he was, I'm going to forget the the term, but it's a different kind of reggae and he would put it on and I'm like, what is this? It's so listenable. And then I get to learn about this whole other genre of music that I didn't know about. And of course, can't think of the name of right now. I love how at the end of Jukebox, we see the whole progression of everything too. It's it's almost mm-hmm. like you tell a story about how you created the story mm-hmm. visually, as well as in your written dedication to, to Nick, really. I mean, it's such a beautiful, <laughs> I hope he, I hope he framed this or something. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful love letter to her husband, basically. But I love all the sketches and the thumbnails and then watching like the inks and the colors, like as someone who isn't an artist myself, the process is really what fascinates me. Mm -hmm. We see that your next book is all about boba. It is. And I'm I'm curious, I'm a big boba fan, how that was inspired and and why boba? Yeah, I didn't know brown people were allowed to like boba. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Wait, is there a rule I don't know? (laughs) No, Mike. So again, my daughter likes it, but I was like, well, you're half Chinese. So I guess that's from your mom's side. Oh, the tapioca is so gross. I don't want to eat my drink, guys. What? What? I think you haven't had good boba. But yeah, you haven't had good boba then. You, you've got to have boba from California. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. Cle- clearly the New York, yeah. Soho, yeah. like tri-state area boba is trash. It's a little different, I have to say. <laughs> I've had boba from both But you're, no, no, hang on. My podcast co-host who grew up in Chinatown where I work, yeah. very close to, hasn't revealed the secret good boba spot. No, I'm telling you. So I've lived, because I've also lived in LA now and the the better boba really is on the West Coast. There you go. It's not a lie. I, I'm not sure why. East Coast <laughs> boba's trash. Got it. It's just different. It's different out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think anybody who isn't a fan of boba hasn't had good boba because there is bad boba. Oh, there's very bad boba. Yes, I agree. Because if you're thinking about like 
how it's chewy or it's weird, then it's not cooked properly. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And and really bad boba is when it's like kind of mushy on the outside <sighs> and hard yeah. on the inside. Mm-hmm. That's like the worst. But anyway, but that's boba. But yeah, so Nitty, why why boba? And how did how, how did that story develop? Well, that story actually developed from reading uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. So in Neverwhere, there is a London below. Mm-hmm. And these characters go to the below London, which is this whole fantastical world. And there's like a quest and there's like, you know, evil and, all, you know, all the things that make a good Neil Gaiman book. But as I was reading it, I was just sitting there reading it. And I was like, what's below San Francisco? Interesting. And immediately this voice, I don't know whose voice it was, a monster, a monster who causes earthquakes, of course, lives under San Francisco. And then from there, it just blossomed. And I was like, well, what does the monster eat? What's happening with this monster? And who's taking care of the monster? And who's keeping the monster from destroying San Francisco with the earthquakes? And so I just kept working on it and working on it. And I really wanted to tell a story about a granddaughter and a grandmother because I grew up with my grandma. So she was kind of like within the five brothers. Um, She lived at everybody's house for a little bit of time. You know, it was just kind of like not passed around, but she just kind of came and stayed for a week and everybody had time with her. Um, And so she was really quite, chill, but I have a lot of fond memories of hanging out with her and playing cards, but she wasn't a very active grandma, right? It was a very different kind of grandmothering than what I see in my child's life. And her grandmas are very active. They play with her. They have these like amazing relationships. And specifically my daughter's relationship with my husband's mom is uh, one that I've just seen. It's so amazing to see it. And I thought a lot about, and I think a lot about these things in what I do and what I work on is what characters do we not see enough of? Mm-hmm. Uh, what relationships do we not surface? And so the two things that I thought really were, were drawing me in were I don't see enough mixed race kids in books. I do think that's changing. But the other thing is you don't see old people as main characters, you know, like yeah. the, the kind yeah. of older generation really gets forgotten. And they're still very active, you know, and, and a lot of kids are growing up either with their grandparents or grandparents who are really active in their lives. And so I really wanted to have them as the main characters. And then the idea just blossomed from there. What is what is Nine I do? Well, she owns a boba cafe. And of course, Aria comes and she mucks it all up with her ideas to make it more popular, you know? But Nine is like kind of trying to keep this monster at bay. Yeah. So so that's, I mean, it really it came from reading Neil Gaiman. So that's where the idea blossomed from. But I had already kind of been interested in having those two main characters. And so, you know, it's just kind of cobbling together all the things that are influencing my life at the time. Yeah. I love how you're like, one, drawing from the greats, right? Like you've named three of like, (laughs) you know, the the greatest of all times in in nerd world, right? Yeah. In Jumpa and Jihin and Neil. Mm -hmm. But then then there's also like this deeply personal curiosity of, but that thing they talked about, what about me? Mm -hmm. Because you mentioned mixed race kids, like, 
Are your kids mixed as well? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Nick is um, Italian Portuguese, but you know, okay. very American in that way. Um, and so, I mean, he, he, you know, it was like two generations, and yeah. like the yeah. the connection is lost. Yeah, but it's still, you know, they're still kind of filtering that in. But yeah, my my daughter is mixed, um, and so and also like her entire class, I would say like it's probably 70% of her class, maybe 60% of her class is mixed. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's like just a product of California. It's just, like, it's what's happening. I mean, it's, it's the secret is like America is all mixed yeah. and it's just the colors Good are just point. starting to mix lately. Yeah. Right? To, to your point of like your husband's mixed race ethnicity as well. Mm-hmm. Portuguese, I think you said Portuguese Italian, mm-hmm. right? Like that's America. It's kind of inevitable. Yeah. Even if right. you do live in Torrance right. or, you know, the Bay Area or Atlanta <laughs> right. or Alabama. Yeah. 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 So I feel like, you know, that's the thing that, but at the same time, I say that. And so when I made Pashmina, Pashmina was definitely my identity book, right? Right. right. So it was very much that thing where I felt it was necessary. And I made that book. And I don't want to make that book over and over again, mm. right? And so I wanted to explore all the other facets of storytelling, characterization, but also not mire my characters in their ethnicity and their own mm-hmm. identity the entire time. So the only time that Arya's mixed race background is mentioned, I think, is in the jacket copy. Because mm. we are more than that. That's great. Yeah. And I don't actually actively think about it that much. I I think that being in this job actually makes me think about it way more than I ever have. And I'm not sure if I like that. Yeah, we should be more focused on the records we're listening to or not listening to right. or the bad taste in boba right. that most people have, <laughs> really. <laughs> I mean, I love that you're thinking of it, right? Because you are, mm-hmm. you're literally creating the pictures that... Our kids are seeing that we're looking at, and and uh, it's a reflection that they're seeing that they're seeing sooner, right? right than we all yes. did with yes. Juba and Jean. I mean, like we we all didn't have any pictures of anyone that looked like ourselves, but certainly the idea of mixed race as a as a concept, you know, terms like Hapa, right? Like that, mm-hmm. like brand new to me today, and like yeah, it's it's a not that it's a new concept, but it just wasn't talked about as much. Right. And I think the other thing to me that that I talk about a lot within my author community is, you know, I go out and I do these school visits and I talk to kids and so many kids want to be artists. They want to be graphic novelists. They want to make comics. And how powerful is it for me to stand there and say, I've made Pashmina and 17 books like Pashmina. Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm standing in front of you telling you that this is the kind of story that you have to make in order to be standing in this space? Or is it more powerful for me to say, I've made Pashmina and a book about sharks and a book about time travel? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I am here in this space and I'm telling you that whatever you imagine and whatever you want to pursue, you can do that. That's what I want to give to our kids, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the space that we all want for them. We want them to be able to pursue whatever they dream. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. And so kind of related to that, if we were to turn back time and do some time travel mm-hmm. and go back to Torrance <laughs> with the huge Tanani clan <laughs> surrounding us, what would you tell young Nitty today? What advice would you give to her? Oof. 
Well, I didn't get into it because I didn't feel like it, but um, I had a really traumatic childhood. It was really difficult. So I would just tell her it gets better. And it might not seem like it now, but it will. It'll get better. I think that's sage advice for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. It gets better. You'll get through it. Yeah. It'll be okay in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This will pass. Yep. Yeah. Nidhi, I wish, I mean, I hope we get to talk more, but I wish we could talk longer in this chat, but we're almost out of time. Sharon, do you think Nidhi is ready for a speed round? I think she's so ready and I'm really excited because I want to hear these answers, Nidhi. Are you ready for speed round? Okay, hit me. Uh, wrong answer. No one's ever ready for speed round. Okay, I'm not ready. That's, that's, that's my token response. <laughs> Nidhi, what's one thing about you that no one expects? Crap. No, I'm not ready, obviously. What is something <laughs> that no one expects? I don't know if this counts because you can see it, but I'm left-handed. Mm. It always surprises people. So, I want, I want to ask a question about that. Yeah. When I was a kid, the, and people can't see that you're left-handed because we're on a podcast, right? Um, we don't do video, remember? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I had to tutor a little Indian girl down the street. She was like five years younger because uh, I was okay at math. And that's what her dad was like, oh, you know, this rumming kid's a good kid. And he was like, my daughter is left-handed. Can you get her to try to write with her right hand? Mm -hmm. Was that ever a thing in like the Torrance oh, Indian community? absolutely. Yes. Isn't that, I mean, and then I didn't find out till like my second trip to India in my teen years why that was, mm -hmm. like the bad hand, mm -hmm. so to speak. And yeah, anyway, I just, I was wondering about that. No, it definitely, they tried to... You know, they tried to break it, um, but unfortunately, handedness cannot be changed. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you can. Be, I'm actually, because of it, I'm a little ambidextrous in everything else except yeah. writing and drawing. So a lot of people um, end up being so kind of left-handed that they need left-handed scissors and all those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I've never been that because I was forced to use my right hand early on to like retrain my brain. And so it's made me kind of middle of the road with other things. So in, in a way, it's actually made my life a little easier. But if I hadn't uh, continued with my left hand, I probably wouldn't be an artist. So it's, a, it's like yeah. a superpower. It is yeah. a superpower. Yeah. I think that works. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you relate to? Man, I thought you were going to ask something that yes. was like... It's funny. Our speed round questions... They're, they're meant to slow it down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a bait and switch there because it's speed round, but then it's meant to slow it down. So... Uh, any any story, any story, any character. You're like, that. that's my jam. Those are my people. It can even be a song. <laughs> um okay so since you said song so i just went and saw lizzo mm. and lizzo has been basically on repeat in my house since and i would say that like kind of any one of her songs would do but the song special is kind of as much as you know i'm doing all this work and you know i you could perceive that I feel accomplished, but most of the time I say this and I really should stop because uh, my daughter is listening. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, more awesome than not, I feel, I feel like, you know, kind of like a little mouse, you know, like I haven't gotten there yet and I'm still trying and I still deal with a lot of insecurity um, and I'm worried about things. And so sometimes you just need a song like special 
Yeah. Just to like listen to it and say, in case nobody told you today, you're special. And I think it's like Lizzo's whole kind of discography in every song that she puts out there. It's just like this anthem of self-love that I really feel like I want to like just absorb it into my skin, you know? I definitely, I really love that song and I love that that's her kind of, you know, her message. And because she embodies it, I believe it. You know what I mean? If, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I think if, if it was some some other pop star that was just their one-off, but it wasn't part of their whole message, then I don't think that I could get it into me the same way as she does. She's just a unique artist in that respect. And so, yeah, that's that's the song. That's, that's my answer. It, it's so funny because... Um... I'm a bit of a music snob, or I was, mm-hmm. right? And um, I've really opened my mind up to other genres. Like I didn't listen to, other than like being a little kid and listening to Michael Jackson, like pop. <laughs> but, you know, then I got like really into rock and indie rock and classic and, you know, uh, folk stuff like The Shins and Elliot Smith, blah, blah, blah. But I've really started to develop this appreciation for pop. And to be clear, I know who Lizzo is. I don't know this song. But hearing you say that, mm-hmm. like, I am like, I wrote it down like, okay, I need to go listen to this song. Because the other thing I realized in kind of my advanced stage <laughs> is, you know, look, I can read the news and listen to podcasts and it slows me down and it makes me think. But sometimes I kind of need to hack my brain with music, yes. you know, like if I'm feeling like shit walking off the subway to work, I shouldn't be listening to Elliot Smith. I should be listening oh to the White Stripes instead, right. right? Or something like that. So, um, yeah, I'm totally writing the song down because I think I've had, I don't know the song and I don't appreciate Lizzo, but I've had the moment that you described, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think so, you know, in the in the world of music nerdery that I live in, um, I bring the pop in. Mm-hmm. So we definitely like my my daughter and I listen to a lot of pop music, but I also listen to a ton of stuff that my husband brings in. Some of it mm-hmm. I don't like, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just like it's so refreshing, it's so yeah. unique. And a lot of pop music is very or pop yeah, yeah. Like it's like not necessarily your Taylor Swift, but you know, I mean, Janelle Monet, who is a phenomenal musician, like on every mm-hmm. level, could be considered a pop musician, but she's so much more than that, right? So it's just like, I mean, yeah, it's good to keep it open. And yeah, you don't want to listen to Elliot Smith when you're done. No, <laughs> no. Bad, bad. Unless you're an emo teenager and you just want to go down the road. Right, <laughs> exactly. But on that vein, who's someone you would want to talk to on a podcast? Ooh. Man, I mean, it's got to be another author that, I mean, I guess probably Chumpa Lahiri would be cool. Mm. It'd be cool to hear from her. She is absolutely one of those guests I'm holding out for to keep yeah. her in this podcast. Yeah, I would love to. But, but like to too cool her. for school. Like I'm almost too afraid to email her. <laughs> I feel like I should learn Italian and write it in Italian. Oh, I mean, you could probably just use Google Translate. Isn't it supposed to be just as good as learning Italian? <laughs> she would. She would know. She would know. Yeah, I'm sure she, she would, would never, never come on the podcast. <laughs> Nitty, what is your favorite mom dish? Like food. Like food. Yeah. So oh, something okay. that your mom made for you, or since you're a mom now, something that you make today that would be like your signature mom dish. Maybe both. Mm. So my favorite mom dish was my mom made samosas uh, a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because they're they're not hard to make. They're just time consuming. Um, as somebody who makes them now, I know that. 
And, you know, that's why it was like a special treat because they're so lot of time and I make them. But my daughter's favorite is aloo gobi paratha. Uh-huh. Nice. Um, which is like a, a flatbread stuffed with um, spiced potatoes and cauliflower. Yum. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's like a go-to. Every time my mom comes up for a visit mm-hmm. or I go down, she like fries up a storm, packs them in wax paper and foil, and I stick a pile of them in my freezer. Like there's always awesome. a pile of those in my freezer. It's good. I, I I aspire to be the mom who does that in the future. My child comes <laughs> to visit and like, you know, the yogurt containers of, of food. Just but like, you can't fly with the yogurt containers anymore. Oh, but, yeah. good point. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah. that's upsetting about that. But my mom also does freeze her like chicken curry masala and puts it in jars and puts that in my Oh, that's yeah. love. Yes, it is. Well, the antithesis of love is what's your least favorite food? Man. My least favorite food. You really, this does really slow it down because I'm like, um, <laughs> okay, so I would have to say, so I'm a lifelong vegetarian. Um, so all meat is out. And I feel like there's certain cuisines that are very meat forward. And one of those is Greek food. And I can really only have like falafel or tzatziki or tabbouleh at a restaurant. I'm not talking mm. about like actual what yeah. Greek people eat. And I'm sure it's vast compared to what ends up at a restaurant. But it ends up being my least favorite because I just, I miss the spicy. Mm. And I'm very limited in terms of options. So it's not necessarily least favorite, but it's just like something that I don't get too excited about. It's a genre you have trouble with. Have yeah. you had the spinach and feta thing? Banacopita. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all right. They're all right. Again, it could use some flavor. Heat. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, you grew up with that kind of palate. I feel like mm-hmm. it skews your perception of how things should taste. Yeah. It's not even close to like an alu gobi anything. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I hear you. Okay. So now the last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Mm. I think actually it means kind of what I said earlier. It means thinking about it a lot more. I think that we are in a place now as a global community, really, where we're thinking about who gets what opportunities, who gets a seat at the table, how we as people who occupy these spaces in, in the, you know, air quote, minority can also look to other folks who might not have the same situation as you and make sure everybody is included and everybody has a voice. And so I think it, it really means kind of not pushing it to the background and not skirting around it. I have much more open conversations about what it's like to come up against obstacles, what opportunities are kind of feeling like they're skewed for white folks. And, you know, just really being very forthright and very conscientious about how we need to collectively shift the dynamic and make everything more equal. That's great. I think that's great. Nidhi, you, I've been looking forward to this for a lot of reasons, mainly I think when you're 
your your package arrived just gave me so much delight. Like Yay. not only not only was it filled with really adorable, amazing things, but you even doodled on the on the envelope. And I was like, this is just yes. so thoughtful. Like, like <laughs> it just already like your energy was already carrying through and and then opening it up. And then literally my nine-year-old boy was just reading, you know, Pashmina first, then jukebox and has been just asking me since then, like, when are you talking to her? When are you talking to her? (laughs) I want to know about this. And I want, and so I'm going to let him definitely take a listen after this, but it's been, it's been so great to chat with you. And thank you so much for this time today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's been lovely. And that's our show. Like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Love.